Good morning, church family. Thank you. Thank you. Hope your weekend went well. Um, this weekend I had a little bit of time to relax and watch a movie on Netflix, which I don't typically get to do a whole lot. And this particular movie, it wasn't a movie, it was a documentary actually, was about probably one of the greatest heroes that we have in America, a young man by the name of Nolan Ryan, a.k.a. Big Tex. And being half Texan, I really appreciated this documentary because, well, Nolan's a hero, isn't he? Nolan's done 27 years. He's arguably the greatest baseball player of all time. 27 years he pitched beginning in 1965. He was drafted to the Mets. In that first season with the Mets, he won a World Series. Not only did Nolan continue to do great things for the Mets, he gave his heart, he practiced hard, he did all these wonderful things, but for some reason or another, the Mets decided not to hang with him and they decided to trade him. So Nolan was traded and he went from the Mets to the Angels. The Mets got rid of him, but he went to the Angels and pitched four no-hitters. As if he didn't prove himself with the Angels, the Angels traded him too where he found himself close to home with the Houston Astros. Amen. With the Astros, he was able to pitch another no-hitter. And as if that wasn't enough, the Astros said, well, we don't think you're worth your pay, Nolan. They tried to dock him a little bit. I think 20% of his pay they tried to to decrease. And if you all remember, he was the first million-dollar athlete. Y'all remember that? So Nolan, they tried to take about $200,000 from his pay. He's like, no, that's not going to work. And then the folks at the Rangers picked him up where he was able to pitch two no-hitters with them in 1990 and in 1991. In like his 25th career. Are y'all with me? But guess what? Nolan still never received a Cy Young reward. He was never awarded the Cy Young, which is the epitome award of pitcher recognition. Seven no-hitters he pitched in his entire career. Almost 5,200 strikeouts. But yet he was still rejected by multiple teams. And in the end, he still has not received his Cy Young reward or award, which we need to rectify here before he passes off. Nolan Ryan was arguably the best baseball player of all time, yet he was rejected by four different teams and a major recognition organization. And in scripture, we find the greatest who was still rejected. He was rejected by his own people. He was rejected by his neighbors. Yet there is no amount of rejection that was offered to Christ that changed one piece of his glory. You see, he was still rejected, but glorious. And today we're gonna spend a little time as we continue through Mark chapter six. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Mark chapter six. We'll begin with verses 14. If you could please stand with me in honor of God's word. We're going to read, well, we're not going to read 
verses 1 through 29. We're going to cover verses 1 through 29 this morning, but we'll read verses 14 through 29. It begins, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has raised from the dead. For he was Herod. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately he the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let us pray. Father God, your word is true. Every bit of it is inspired. Every bit of it is for us, Father God, to be stronger, to live out, and to carry forth to those who don't know you. And we pray this morning that that will happen. We ask that you will remove any distractions far from us. Help us to focus on your word. Remove me, Father God. Hide me behind this pulpit. Let your Holy Spirit speak. We pray this morning that someone, Father God, many even would respond, whether in person or on TV, to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. You may be seated. Rejected, yet still glorious. Our title for this morning's message is the rejected or the glorious rejected. And our main idea, if there's anything that I can leave you with here today, it is that we should enthusiastically, that's a hard word to say, I don't know why I chose that for my main idea, but I used it, embrace Christ, and then he will manifest great power in our lives. Enthusiastically embrace Christ, and he will then manifest great power in our 
lives. We began reading verse 14, but the passage that we're going to study today and spend time with begins at verse 1 in chapter 6. So join me as I read verses 1 through 6 as the first section for our main point, our first main point. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And with what wisdom was given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Verse 1 gives us a couple bits of information by observation. First, we see the setting. Jesus was back at home. His home is Nazareth. We know that. We know that he was also with his disciples. We also know that the actions of the disciples was that they followed him. Very simple. Nothing too complex here. But in verses 2 through 3, things heat up a little bit. We hear from his neighbors. We hear from those who know him like nobody else. And his neighbors were actually not there, as one would think, to encourage him along but they were heckling him. They were saying, how is this? Wherever Jesus goes, there's always somebody that kind of picks apart the things that he says and starts asking questions. We've seen this in Mark so far. The scribes would come to us and say, or come to him and say, what authority do you have to teach these things? And then the Pharisees argue with them earlier and different groups of people. We've gone through this before. So here's Jesus in public again with his ministry. And yet there are people who are questioning his intentions. But this is a little bit different because these people who are questioning Jesus have spent the last 30 years with him. That's unique. They know him. They have a human proximity to Jesus that we will never really understand. They knew him, the man. They knew him. They knew him, the child. They knew his mother. They knew his father. They knew his siblings. Some of them may even recall when Jesus' first tooth fell out. They may have been the recipients of some of Jesus' furniture. He may not even have been that good of a carpenter, but they knew that. I don't know. I'm not saying that. But they knew Jesus. They got lost that time that the family went to Jerusalem. They knew Jesus, the one who maybe whined for his mom at night. They knew Jesus in a very personal human way. And it's interesting when we really start to begin to think through exactly how human Jesus was. You see, we on this side of eternity, or on this side of the Testament, I guess, see Jesus primarily as God. But they knew him only as Jesus from up the street. 
Joseph's boy, Mary's boy. And that's what they judged him by. They judged him as a man, not as the son of man. They knew him only as man. But a proper understanding of Jesus as God must, must, must include a proper understanding of Jesus as man. He was a baby. He lived. He was burped by his mama. He worked hard for 30 years. He was just as human as you and I. Just as human as you and I. He wearied even, according to John chapter 4, verse 6. He became thirsty, according to John 19, verses 28 through 30. He had a human body, according to John 19, 31 through 40. He wept even, according to John 13, or John chapter 11, verse 35. He became troubled with the things that happened around him. Can anybody relate, amen? According to John chapter 12. And for 30 years, he was essentially one of them. The fact that he was 100% man is exactly what we too must understand in order for Christ to be 100% God. According to John chapter 1 verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We can't understand the word unless we understand that he was flesh. Yet before he was flesh, he was still the word of God. But the flesh of God came down and dwelt among us. He literally embedded himself in human conditions in a neighborhood and got to know his neighbors. And they saw him as just that his neighbor. Yet we know today that before he was the flesh, he was the word. He was God's message. He was God's messenger. Before he was Jesus the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, he was the word of God. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 give us a little bit of insight of who Jesus was before he became flesh and dwelt among us. Join with me in reading. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything might be preeminent in him. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of God. Of Christ. He is God, yet they saw him as simply man and they took offense to him. The idea of taking offense 
to him is really understated in English. To take offense of him was to see him as scandalous. The word in Greek that we transliterate into scandal is the word that they used here. He was a scandal to them. How dare you come in here acting like you're God? We know who you are. We grew up with you. We know what synagogue you frequented. And you're here trying to heal people. How are you doing these things with your hands? Because your hands are built to build, build things, right? They're not here to provide these or do these miracles and all these wonderful things that he was doing. He was a scandal to them. And oh, by the way, friends, the setting of this engagement was in the synagogue. Was in the synagogue, folks. His neighbors came to him while he's teaching in the synagogue and called him out. Oh, friends, I understand now why it's difficult for those who grew up in a particular church to stay in that particular church. Because too often, the folks who knew us coming up remind us of who we are, or excuse me, remind us of who we were as opposed to who we are. Amen? You see, they forget that we have been born again and made new in Christ. They knew the first 30 years of Jesus' life, and they weren't ready to deal with the new person he was as a follower of Jesus. Friends, let us not make the same mistake with our neighbors. In verse 4, the story continues, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. I like the New Living Translation version of this. It says, and Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and among his own family. Almost saddened, we hear Jesus kind of passively give this comment. He's hurt. He's bothered, perhaps, that those who know him most, that those who were the closest to him, did not recognize who he truly was. That those who perhaps held him at birth and definitely beheld him throughout his life refused to accept him for who he truly was, the son of God. Jesus says that a prophet is not without honor. This idea of a prophet isn't something new that came to Jesus. This was a common quote and Jesus is really looking at Jeremiah's life. In chapter 11, verse 21, Jeremiah went to his own hometown and spoke to his people. And therefore, thus says the Lord in Jeremiah eleven twenty one, concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life and say, do not prophesy in the, main, in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. Jeremiah's neighbors dared him to give the message that God had given to him. And if he had done so, then they promised to kill him. Jeremiah refused to keep quiet. We know that he had a fire. Amen, friends, come on. That was burning deep in his bones that he could not keep to himself. And he had to get that word out. 
In Luke chapter 4, verses 24 through 27, we read, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the, lay, in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. But Elijah only went to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. But there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Only Naaman the Syrian. The wickedness of those in Jeremiah's day was no different than the wickedness and disbelief of those in Elisha's day, no different from the wickedness and disbelief of those in Jesus' day no different than the wickedness and disbelief of those in our day. Yet, will we be quiet? Oh, friends, we have no choice but to proclaim the word of God, which is why we read in verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them due to their lack of faith in Jesus and seemingly complete rejection his work with them was minimal yet through his grace there were some who believed and those he healed but because of their lack of faith and belief in him his work in their community was small because of the lack of faith and the disbelief in Jesus, the work was small in the nation. Oh, friends, do we need this word today? We look around and we see all these things that are happening. And it frustrates the living daylights out of us as we look at the schools, as we look at the government, as we look at the organizations. And we look at, I was watching something or heard um, on the radio, there was a, uh, I think it was Wall Street Journal, maybe. Um, there was an article on the corruption within a certain agency of the government. And it was surprising to them. It was shocking that this thing could happen. Friends, the world has wholeheartedly rejected Jesus. And we're surprised when we see no mighty work done. In verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages and he continued teaching. This word marveled again is, is it doesn't quite capture everything that he felt. It literally means to be astonished, to be in wonder, to be greatly surprised, to be dumbfounded even. He was dumbfounded at their lack of belief in him. For they knew him, yet they still rejected him. Imagine for a second, for those of you that remember the Publishers Clearinghouse. Y'all remember that? Right, the big check. I forget the guy's name. Was it Vin? I forget his name. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Dude would show up to your door. He's got a big paper check for like a million bucks, right? 
That's it. That was everyone's dream in my day at least, right? And so he shows up, he knocks on the door. Imagine for a second though, he shows up to your house, Brother Danny, and he's like, hey, I got this big check for you. Come on out here and take a picture. And then our brother Danny slams the door on him, says, man, get out of here. This is a scam or something. Is that money any less valuable because he rejected it? It still has the same value. He's just missed out on a million bucks. And he's going to get in trouble when she finds out. (laughs) Friends, Jesus is no less valuable, no less glorious because the world rejects him. His value and glory still remains Yet they are without the opportunity to see the miracles of Christ in their life. Friends, billions of people on this earth will and continue to reject Christ. Yet the sun still rises and the earth still turns and he still beckons us to him. But don't expect anything in your life, major, if your faith in him is absent. Don't expect any miracles. Don't expect any deliverance, friends, if you are rejecting the Jesus of the cross, the Son of God. Just because you're here, friends, doesn't mean that you fully embrace who Christ is. Let's take a a second to deduce this idea of Little miracle results from disbelief in Jesus. In verse 5, we read that he could do no mighty work in Nazareth because they had rejected him. So what does that say for the life of the average human? Do you see deliverance in your life? What are the fruits of your life? Have you seen changes that you can share about with your friends? Do you still find yourself caught in an addiction, struggling with your flesh, caught in some type of relationship that you know you ain't got no business in, cheating on your taxes, a lifestyle that perpetually sins? And the results of that life, friend, I would challenge you to ask yourself, where is your faith and which Jesus? It is, is it the Jesus of Nazareth or is it the Jesus of eternity? It cannot be both. It cannot be both. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 40, there is a couple, 16 through 24, there are two different lists that I like to look at from time to time that really put me in my place. Beginning in verse 16 of Galatians 5, we read, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed to each other, to keep you, for those are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we see here two different individuals perhaps are two different types of lifestyle one that follows the spirit of God one that follows the flesh they are not the same amen they are not the same because the works of the flesh are 
evident. Their sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Before that, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong in Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh (laughs) and with its passions and with its desires. Friends, which side of the aisle do you sit on today? I pray That you are not like the average Nazarene who sees little to no work of God in your life. But as we continue reading in verses 7 through 13, we see what the possibility is for those who fully embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior. In verse 7 we read, And he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits and he charged them to take nothing For their journey, except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whatever, excuse me, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will receive you, will not receive you. And they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony Against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. In verse 7, we see that they went out two by two. Some take this as a missiological technique, like when you go out and do ministry, you need to go in a pair. I don't necessarily think that's what's happening. Here, I think that was a good practice, or that's a good practice for us. But I think the two was a sign of a witness of affirmation or a witness of validation to what Christ had done. And they went out two by two. And like any good mission, they had some orders. They had some koas or courses of action that they needed to abide by. So allow me for a little while to work through um, a bit of a military metaphor here. As he sent them out, they were given their mission. Go and proclaim the good news. He mentioned to them not to worry about teaching in depth, not to worry about staying there too long. Just go and tell them the good news. And then he gave them authority, which you need in any mission. Any military engagement, you definitely need some authority. And his authority he gave over them He gave to them over the unclean spirits. He delegated the ministry of miracles that his followers have watched him do for the first six chapters. This is the first time that we see them engage in ministry. And so at least in my background, if you've been taught something, there's only one way to prove that you know how to do it. Application. And so this is their opportunity to show that they're able to go out and do what they've been taught to do. If you're not doing what you've been taught to do, I'm not sure if you really know and have embraced what you've been taught to do. If you can't apply 
what you've been taught, then have you really been taught? Okay, I'll, I'll move on. I'll move on. Um, he gave them authority. Their mission was clear, but they needed some logistical support. And so in verse 8 and 9, he reads, or he says to them, Take nothing for your journey except for a staff, no bread, no money, no bag in their belts, but to put on sandals, but not two tunics, just one. Essentially, he was telling them that they only needed the bare minimums. They didn't need to rely on all the other stuff. They didn't need like a 60-day bag. Sometimes when we go and travel, you know what I mean, I'm talking about you. My wife overpacks. We'll go to North Carolina for the weekend, and we'll end up with like six cases of I don't know what. When the babies were in Pampers, we had enough Pampers at least for a year on a two-day trip, right? I'm sorry. I love you. It's just the truth, y'all. We tend to think that doing stuff for Jesus means we need to have a whole lot of stuff, that we need to go to seminary, and we have to go to, I don't know, we overcomplicated is what I'm saying. Jesus told them just to take the essentials. This was their first missionary exercise. And the point is that they were only to rely on God. He would give them all the provision that they needed. He would make sure they had a place to stay. He would make sure that they had someone to stay with. He would make sure that they had everything that they needed. I wonder, was it difficult for them to walk out basically with what they had on them and do this work? Believing only in the Jesus who had sent them, not in the things that they'd been sent or not in the things that they'd left at home, perhaps. In verses 10 through 11, he continues with a little bit of a security briefing in my mind. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against him. He told them when they enter a house, if there's a person of peace, if there's a place of friendliness, stay there. Don't go house hopping. If you find a good place where people love you and where God's people love you and you are used by God, that's the place you need to reside. I'm not going to go down a little rabbit hole on that one, but I like, I'd like to say a lot more to that matter, but I'm not. Stay at the place where God has sent you. If they receive you, stay there. But if not, move on. And if they send you out of the town, shake the dust off your feet. Don't let anything that came or that you picked up there go with you. It literally means judgment on these people. This was seen in Matthew chapter 10, verses 14 through 15. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake the dust off your feet. And when you leave that house or that town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day, on the day of judgment for that land, than on Sodom and Gomorrah, than on that town. Let me reread that because verse 15, I kind of messed up. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than that town. We know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
They were destroyed completely for rejecting God's word. But also, when you reject God completely, understand what you embrace. Sodom and Gomorrah was a wicked, wicked place. Therefore, in the land where God is rejected, you have a wicked, wicked land. Acts chapter 18, verse 6 reads, And when they opposed and reviled him, speaking to Paul, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, for I am innocent. I am now going off to the Gentiles. It demonstrated judgment. It demonstrated that God was not pleased with them. He continues in verse 12 to say, and they went out and they proclaimed that the people should repent. And we know that the faith of those who were in the neighborhoods, were in the towns that the disciples visited was great because many demons were cast out and many were anointed with oil and were healed. It's the opposite of what happened in Nazareth. Many responded favorably. Many believed Therefore, many were healed. Many responded. They didn't respond based on Jesus' human flesh only. They responded based on the Messiah's coming. As we continue in this story in Mark chapters 14, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, which we read earlier, there's a story that seems a little out of place. And I think we have this story here, which Mark always intentionally puts stories in front of us to give us a case study for the two different sides of the outcome of this ministry that Jesus and his disciples went on. We have the study or the story here of Herod and John the Baptist. It's a famous one. It's a violent one. It's not one that many people are excited to hear. But at the end of the day, it's in the Bible. It's the word of God, so we're going to preach and teach it here. Amen. And in John, or excuse me, Mark 4, 6, 14 through 29, we see a comparison between two people, between Herod and John the Baptist. I don't really have the amount of time that I'd like to have to go through and read and break down each of these small nuances. But I'd like to, just for simplification, give you a character study of John in a character study of Herod. What was the faith of John the Baptist and what was the faith of Herod? And then what were the results of each of their faith? We know Herod was a mean man. We know that his father was a very mean man. His father was Herod the Great. The Herod that we're dealing with right now is Herod Antipas. Herod the Great was the one who contracted the wise men to go out and find Jesus. But when they didn't show back up, what did he do? Killed thousands of children in Bethlehem. Well, Herod took after his father. Herod's faith was firmly in Rome. We know that because he was a king. In order to be a king in the Roman Empire, you needed to first pledge loyalty to Caesar. To them, Caesar was a king, or he was a god. He was a deity. His word was ultimate his power was complete. Jesus refers to Herod in Luke chapter 13, verse 32, as a fox. Someone that's cunning, witty, yet sly, who can't be trusted. We know also Herod believed greatly in his power. 
Josephus, the historian, determines that Herod killed John not only because of his defiance towards his lifestyle, but Herod killed John because he was a threat to his power. Herod believed greatly in his power. We know also Herod believed in the people. He was a people pleaser. He threw a birthday party on his own birthday, and he made a commitment, and he stuck to it in spite of his morals because he feared greater the people. Herod was also a man who believed in his flesh, his fleshly desires and his infatuation with his wife's daughter, who, by the way, was his brother's ex-wife, now his stepdaughter, but also his niece who danced for him. If that ain't a mess. Herod was a man who was lost. And his ultimate outcome showed exactly what his belief system was. Initially, or in, at the end of his time, he was sent away from Caesar. He was fired. He was cast away. He was exiled with his wife. And from what I understand, he lived out all of his days in agony. John's belief was in God's word. We know that because he taught John's, or he taught Herod the word of God. He taught Herod that it was wicked to marry his wife's or his brother's wife. We taught the followers of Jesus that they should repent and come to him. He believed in the Son of God. He called Jesus the Lamb of God. In John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, John believed deeply in God's word and in his sent son. And the results of Herod's faith ultimately ultimately reflect his belief system. Now, if you're thinking to me, well, Herod was beheaded. How were, his, how were the results of his faith beneficial to him? If you're upset and worried by the results of the faith of Herod, and maybe even a little encouraged by the results of the faith of Herod and what happened to Herod. Herod was a rich king. He had whatever he wanted, yet he was wicked. Well, here's John the Baptist, a faithful servant of God who was beheaded. But friends, if your vision or if your thoughts of those two men stop there, then you're falling short of what really in eternity matters. You see, we know that John the Baptist reigns, or not reigns, but he sits with Jesus in eternity, that he's present with God currently. Herod, my friends, is in hell with Satan. The results of these two men's faith ultimately led to their eternal destiny, not their earthly destiny. When Sister Marissa was here a few months ago, I talked to her a little bit about the migrant workers that come here to America and think that this is a land of promise and hope, and they call it the American dream even. They look for comfort and wealth and prosperity and power and opportunity, all these things they come here looking for, and they find themselves lacking. None of what they want is here, friends, because all of what they need is in Jesus. If you place your faith on earthly things, you will find yourself achieving earthly significance, perhaps. But in eternity, you will be lacking. In eternity, you will fall short. In eternity, 
you will live a lifetime separated from God. Thursday, when I prepared this message, or as I was working through it, at that current minute, at 11.14 in the morning on Thursday, there were estimated to be 7,980,813,558 people living, like to the second. Now that fluctuates here and there. That day, there were 75,534 deaths. This year, there have been 45,990,019 deaths. Friends, it's a pretty wild thought to think that in about a hundred and some years, over 8 billion people will die. That's all of us in this room and all of us listening. The goal is not life on earth, friends. What happens when we leave this earth is ultimately the destination that we should seek. It is our eternity that we should strive for. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, we read, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. You take up your cross and you follow Jesus. If you've never denied yourself, if you have never taken up your cross, if you've never followed Jesus, perhaps your faith is still in the Jesus of Nazareth and not the Jesus of eternity. But if you have, according to Matthew chapter 16, given up your life for him, if you have surrendered your soul to Jesus, then friends, you too will be with him in the kingdom of heaven for an eternity. In John 1, verses, or verse 1, this isn't in your notes. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in him, he gave them the right to be called children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. The challenge today is for a second, consider in 100 years or so, let's say if you live to be 110, Brother Bob, Brother Tom, where will you, the moment after your life passes from this earth, spend an eternity? And if you're not at peace with that thought, if you don't know, friends, then let me make it clear. If you believe in Jesus, you lay down your life, which means to give up everything that matters to you, not some of the stuff that matters to you, not smoking cigarettes here and there, not drinking here and there, give up everything that matters to you, you must lay down your entire life. Christ will not allow you to come into his kingdom with half of the world's kingdom with him. It's Jesus and Jesus and nothing else. Nothing else. You come to him, you lay down your life, everything that matters to you. And you take up your cross. Well, what does it mean to take up your cross? That means get to work. And it's work. Tell people about Jesus. Tell them what you've witnessed. I had a good conversation with my brother Don a few days ago about evangelism and what does it mean to really clarify or, or to articulate the gospel 
And at the end of the conversation, we decided you can't tell people about a Jesus that you haven't personally experienced. But if you have, you can. If you struggle to tell people about Jesus, tell them what he did for you. Tell them of the change, the evidence, the results of your faith. If you don't have any, then I'm wondering. We need to talk. If you don't see Jesus living in your life, friends, and come and talk to us. But if you, like Jeremiah, have a fire that is stuck inside of you on your chest and your bones even that you can't keep to yourself, then friends, know that you are taking up your cross and follow him. That means that he is in charge. You may want to root for Virginia Tech, but if Jesus says you need to root for, who's the other team that Virginia Tech don't like? Brother Barry, I don't know. Virginia, UVA, then you need to, I'm, no, I'm not going to say that, but you get what I'm saying? Jesus at some point decided to send me out of the military and I was mad. <laughs> oh man, I was mad because I love the Air Force folks. I love being able to pick up every day and put on that uniform and go out and do my thing. But the Lord said, look, man, are you following me or not? Because I need you to do something different. And so for the past four years, I haven't been able to do that on full time. I followed him. And there were some sacrifices, but oh boy, the benefits of following Jesus are so much greater than the sacrifices. You will give up something. And if you ain't giving up nothing, I'm, I'm struggling to think whether or not you've even followed him. In a moment, we're going to pray, and I would ask you to consider asking Jesus into your life. I would ask you to lay down your life, pick up your cross, and follow him. And if you've never done that, friends, we know that in about 110 years or so, we'll all be gone. We don't know when in the next 110 years our time will be. Let not another moment pass before you lay down your life to the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this very moment that you've given us right now to show your grace, to demonstrate your love and your mercy to us. We pledge to you right now, Father God, forgive us of our sins. Take our life, Lord. Put us on mission, Lord, that we may too go out and tell everyone about you, Lord. We look forward to the amazing things that you will do through us. We look forward to the miracles, to the deliverance in our lives, Father God. I pray that for those who have accepted you as Savior, Lord, that you would put in front of them just one person today, Lord, that they can witness to. We thank you, Father God, this day. We thank you for deliverance. We thank you for the faith that you have placed in us to believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we ponder the greatness and the goodness of God, please join us in worship in response to his word. <laughs>